First, though, taking a look at what is happening, the debate in the House of Commons continuing over the Emergencies Act. Here's a short comment. This was from earlier today and Christopher Freeland. If your truck is being used in these protests, your corporate accounts will be frozen. The insurance on your vehicle will be suspended. The consequences are real and they will bite. It is time for you to go home. And quickly, this is Global News reporter Sean O'Shea. He posted this just a couple of hours ago as he walked through with some of those protesters in Ottawa. I'm Sean O'Shea in Ottawa. So the enforcement effort by police has begun here this morning. It started just after 8 o'clock. We're on Wellington Street right in front of the Parliament building. Uh, police from just Ottawa, police right from the OPP, now. liaison officers, they've been going uh, truck to truck. Uh, to inform the people who've been camped out here for nearly three weeks that it's time to go. They're warning them that they have to leave, but they're being dogged. Uh, The police are being dogged. Their liaison officers are being dogged by protesters screaming at them, telling them that they have to leave. And it is going to be a tough go today if the full enforcement action is, in fact, planned for today. We don't know how much of the enforcement will be uh, today, whether it'll just be this or will there be additional uh, efforts. But... Uh, a bit of a foretaste of, of what we're going to see here. Let's bring in Stuart Press to SFU lecturer and political scientist. Stuart, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Good afternoon, Jill. It's my pleasure. Uh, what are your thoughts or reaction hearing uh, those two voices? First, uh, Christopher Freeland saying your trucks will be seized, your, your insurance will be void, you must leave now. And then clearly that's not what's happening on the streets at this point. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that the the Emergencies Act, one of the key uh, justifications for its invocation is to uh, bring to bear those kinds of financial uh, incentives to, to encourage people to, to to leave the streets of Ottawa. And this is uh, something that uh, uh, the federal government can do that other levels of government weren't able to do. So it's a key reason why we, we see recourse to the Emergencies Act. But it also makes clear that, uh, that even when we're bringing these additional tools to bear, that the sort of part of a, a, a campaign of attrition to try to encourage people to to uh, head home from Ottawa and that we're seeing the police taking a very measured approach to the escalation uh, of action against the protesters. And it says that we might be closer to the end of the situation than the beginning. Uh, we're not going to see uh, a rapid end in, in the next few hours or even a couple of days. I think we're still going to uh, need some time for the situation to resolve itself. When we see, though, what's been resolved already at the borders and the specific actions that were taking place at the various border crossings, the Ambassador Bridge or the Coots border crossing, those have already been cleared. And and could the argument not be made that that's what the Emergencies Act is needed for? So why are we having a debate over bringing it in when those particular protests and blockades have cleared? It certainly uh, helped in, in some of the, those cases, but one of the th- strange things about the Ottawa situation is that uh, many of, of the powers that uh, are necessary to uh, clear the streets in Ottawa were available to uh, police forces prior to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. So in some ways, what we're seeing here is just a additional uh, a pressure on uh, particularly the municipal police in Ottawa and uh, uh, and other uh, law enforcement agencies in Ontario to, to, to really just, just step up their 
their uh, bring up their game and to to put it uh, into place actions that are uh, in keeping with the maintenance of the rule of law in the nation's capital. And so some of those powers were already there; they just weren't really being used. And so, what, as much as anything, we see the Emergency Act uh, putting these these agencies on notice that they they really do need to act to restore Ottawa, uh, order in Ottawa. Do you think, though, is that the purpose of the act and of something that's never been used in the country before to bring in these extraordinary powers? If the power to do that was already there, it just wasn't being done. It, it exposes that we, we have something of a, a, a problem in our, our, if you want to call it, the, the federal infrastructure of the country, the sort of the, in the institutions we use to administer government, where uh, we haven't really encountered a problem like this in some time, where it seems pretty clear that one level of government just wasn't really doing its its job. The Ottawa police should have been uh, more aggressive in maintaining order and preventing the situation from emerging in the first place and, and moving to, to uh, bring it to a close uh, much earlier. And uh, the, the municipal governments are ultimately creatures of the province. So if, if the municipal government doesn't do its job, then it's it's on the province to to maintain public safety. That It's their their jurisdiction under the Constitution. But, but we didn't see the Ontario government really acting with the kind of uh, 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 vigor necessary to, to resolve the situation either. So then so then we have the federal government as the, the government of, of last resort, but they don't really have uh, constitutional tools anymore to, to simply step in when, when another level of government doesn't seem to be doing its job. The Emergencies Act is, is the closest fit we have, but it's not an exact fit. And so now we start to see this debate unfolding in the House of Commons today about whether the, the Emergencies Act was justified. And it, it's pretty clear there is an emergency here. There is a crisis of sorts in Ottawa that is not going away. But it is in some ways a crisis of, of governance where the, the rule of law simply was not being uh, enforced. And when we heard from Christian Freeland, uh, the clip I just played, she also talked uh, as well about the fact that the government had been in uh, conversations with FinTrack, with the bank, with some of the big banks and the big financial companies. If they're already doing that and freezing assets and, and going ahead with that, does it seem a bit odd that they're already taking those measures and those actions while still debating whether or not the Emergencies Act is approved? Well, the act is written in such a way that uh, the uh, effectively cabinet can go ahead and start to put actions in place. And uh, uh, the report back to the, the House of Commons is essentially to to justify those actions and to assure their their conti- uh, their continuation. So effectively, uh, government has the power to to declare an emergency and start to put actions in place once they effectively get the the necessary paperwork uh, in order. But uh, but one of the features of the Emergencies Act that is different from, say, the War Measures Act that it replaced is that there's a very strong role for the House of Commons to to exercise oversight over government. Government has to be accountable to the House of Commons to justify this this use of what is normally extra constitutional power. And uh, and so uh, if the House of Commons decide that, that it is not justified, then effectively the emergency ends and we go back to uh, business as usual from a government standpoint. So so essentially government can, can run ahead of of that House of Commons debate, but but then they would be brought back if if the motion doesn't pass. Okay, how important is it? Do you think that if it if it does pass and go ahead, like the Prime Minister had said, it would be focused. It would be focused on specific areas of concern. And we heard, I think, Bill Blair mentioned or was questioned about this earlier in the debate today as well, uh, saying that yes, of course, it's going to be temporary. But how important is it that we have those parameters in place so we we know that it will be revoked or we know that it is going to be temporary if approved? 
I think it's, it's a crucial component of, of the, the Emergencies Act as a piece of legislation. We're basically saying the federal government can do things that it normally would not be able to do. So regulating, say, uh, financial uh, and transactions, uh, normally some of that work is provincial jurisdiction. And so to put that automatic sunset clause on it, that uh, it is going to be of temporary uh, uh, duration, is, is a way to assure Canadians that this isn't a, a move towards a different kind of more centralized, less accountable government. And so it's, it's a, a key reason why I think we can be comfortable with, with the existence of, of this kind of legislation, because sometimes we do face emergencies and sometimes governments have to act, act more rapidly. And, and so I think that that provides us with a degree of comfort that we are not signing away some, some fundamental uh, democratic freedoms as a result. Do you think it's also or, or that, that people are more OK with it or maybe not questioning it as much, given what type of emergency we're dealing with in that here we are more than two years of basically having our freedoms curtailed in many cases? I mean, that's what sparked the protest to begin with. But have people become more conditioned, do you think, with being OK with having restrictions and therefore more conditioned to think that it's OK to have this kind of legislation? I mean, that's one way to frame it. Another way to think about it is that people are are not just okay, but they're really expecting governments to to act more vigorously to to safeguard them, to to provide for security. And I think there's a pretty broad understanding in the Canadian population that this was a collective problem that required some degree of collective response. So we see very high vaccination rates across the country, getting up to the second dose, uh, more than ninety percent of, of the population. We see that people are are accepting some measures of, of restriction understanding the nature of the problem. I think what, what is changing here is that more Canadians, not a majority yet, but more Canadians are, are, are getting a little antsy under, under those restrictions and looking to resume something like their, their normal lives. And we haven't really had that public conversation about, as a country, what is that reopening going to look like? It's happening in this sort of piecemeal, reactive fashion. And so I think a lot of Canadians, the majority, still understand that this is still a problem, still a threat that needs a active government response, and they're willing to accept restrictions. But, but there is a a healthy minority that is no longer willing to to uh, make that that trade off, and and uh, once the dust settles, I think that's a conversation we're all going to have to uh, uh, take part in. All right, Stuart Prest, thanks again so much for joining us. Good to chat with you. We'll leave it there, but thank you so much for your time. Oh, anytime. Thank you. Well, last time we checked in with Shane Woodford, freelance journalist based in Denmark. It was because most, if not all, of the COVID-19 restrictions there were being lifted. And we wanted to get a feel for how people were reacting to that and what exactly was going to be taking place. Well, we figured it would be a good idea to check back in with Shane and find out how things are going, given what's happening in B.C. as well. And Shane is back on the line with us now. Thanks so much for doing this. No problem, Joe. Good to hear your voice. Uh, so how are things going there? Well, uh, in some ways, not so good. <laughs> in other ways, the okay. So um, the reason, as we discussed last time, that they decided to take down all of the restrictions was because while we were seeing unbelievably high infection numbers and hospitalization numbers, the intensive care unit numbers and the numbers of those on a ventilator, uh, we're steadily trending down. And that trend has continued. So good news on one side, the ICU numbers have stayed relatively flat, if not declining, same with ventilator numbers. Uh, we haven't seen them this low since almost last summer. The bad news, Jill, is that we're still seeing incredibly high infection rates. They're not record highs, but they're still hovering in and around the forty to 45,000 a day mark, which for Denmark is unbelievably high. 
and today we had COVID hospitalizations hit another record high, which they have done more or less almost every weekday now for the last week and a half or so. So we got 1,604 people in hospital. Now, again, these days are shorter. They're not going into the intensive care ward. But again, a major, major stressor on hospitals uh, that are already short-staffed due to the, just the rampant amount of infections that Omicron has given us here in Denmark. And remind us, Shane, are there any restrictions in place still in Denmark? No, they're all gone. Um, the only thing is for international stuff. So if you're flying out an international airline or something, uh, then you require a mask on, on certain international flights. The mask mandate has actually just been taken down by Nordic Airlines. So if you're flying from Denmark to Sweden or Denmark to Finland or within the Nordic countries, you no longer have to mask up on a plane either. But for international flights, you do. And how are people reacting? Or, or did you notice when, when that came into place? So were there still people who were choosing to wear a mask or, or do some of, follow some of the guidelines? Or was it kind of like flipping a switch? Yeah, no, it was interesting on that front, Jill, because if you remember, we've gone back to this normal thing before, right? Back on September 10th, we removed all restrictions, uh, which proved to be a fairly unwise course of action. And in that case, uh, as in previous cases, it was like flipping a switch, right? Like people... For some reason, the Scandinavian countries, Denmark uh, very much so, they just have a disdain for mask use. We were really, really late to that game in, in it saying, okay, you have to mask up. We did it like at the very last second uh, when it was really a bad situation, and then we got rid of them as fast as possible. So in September 10th, when they said, okay, we're done, all restrictions gone, we're returning to normal life, masks literally disappeared overnight. Like nobody was wearing a mask. And in fact, stories were going on in the Danish media and first aid organizations where they were just sending like millions of masks were going to third world countries and that kind of thing, developing nations. Uh, so they couldn't get rid of them fast enough. And the interesting thing about this time is that because the infections are just so insanely high, I mean, not a day goes by you don't hear about somebody who is infected who's having to isolate or a kid in your son's school, that kind of thing. I mean, it's just every day. Uh, and now, even though we don't have to mask up, I'm seeing not a huge number, but I'm seeing a pretty regular number of people who are still masking up in grocery stores and shops and that kind of thing. They generally tend to be older, sometimes a few younger people. So I feel like the threat of infection and the pandemic uh, threat overall here in Denmark is still so intense uh, that there is a segment of the population that either feels they need to protect themselves or are vulnerable seniors, people with uh, underlying health conditions where they've, you know, this time instead of ditching the mask, they're like, you know what, until those things over, I'm going to keep masking up, which is, I think is a good responsible thing to do. And on top of that, I have run into some businesses uh, that have asked me to put a mask on going inside. Not very many, but there have been a couple. All right. Uh, wanted to, to circle back to that the numbers you were talking about as well, the hospitalization numbers. And I know yeah. uh, there's been a debate here on the specific wording, and we did get some clarification mm. in that there are people in hospital who are in hospital for something else completely and either contract COVID when they're in the hospital or they're asymptomatic and they perhaps get tested and they test positive. We've seen children doing that as well. Are you able to break down the numbers or do you know if the the record or near record numbers, is it a case of people are going to the hospital because they have COVID or they're then or they're found to have COVID once they're there? We're seeing a growing number of people who are going to hospital for non-pandemic related reasons. Uh, and either have an infection going in, but that's not the cause of their admission, or who test positive once they are admitted. Now, some might say potato, potato, and to some degree, that would be correct. I mean, because you're not being admitted for COVID doesn't mean you don't have to go through all the same protocols and protection issues if you're infected inside a hospital. You still have to be isolated. 
uh, people dealing with you need to gear up, that kind of thing. So even though you're admitted for a broken leg and you're infected, you're still a strain on the system from a COVID point of view. What it does show is that it's an indicator, uh, and how Denmark health officials are looking at it, is it's an indicator of how the Omicron variant is producing far fewer severe infections uh, or infections are even serious enough, never mind going into an ICU, but are serious enough that they have to be hospitalized for the infection. So as a barometer of the pandemic situation, it's a, it's a very good indicator. Uh, as for alleviating, uh, alleviating any stress in the hospital, it's a wash. All right. And what are the vaccination numbers like in Denmark? Yeah, well, we're over, uh, let's see here. Uh, there are 82.5% first dose uh, we're 80.9% second dose, and uh, 61% have a booster shot. But we're also seeing, by the way, Jill, uh, a rising number of COVID deaths, which is really interesting. And a rising number compared to, I would imagine, so obviously uh, in different strains and different times in the pandemic. So what does it look like with COVID-related deaths at this point? Yeah, so we had 44 today, which is a pretty high number for Denmark. Um, we set a new record high for the, like our deadliest day in the pandemic happened just a few days ago on the 13th. Uh, and again, we're seeing sort of that distinction in the language. Uh, Denmark health officials are carrying out kind of this international public relations campaign, like taking on Twitter accounts individually almost. And they've tweeted almost exclusively in English for about a week now. Uh, and they're championing this thing, well, they died, you know, with COVID, but not of COVID. Uh, and again, maybe to some, it's a distinction without a difference. Um, but their case is that uh, they say that under the WHO guidelines, that if you test positive and you die within a four-week period, you're technically a COVID death. So they're using an overly simplistic example. And that example is, so let's say I test positive uh, and a few days later, I step into traffic and get hit by a bus, then I might count as a COVID death, even though that's not the reason why I died. So they're saying to some degree there might be COVID deaths that are being, you know, over-reported because they're not really going in to try and figure out if it's directly due to the infection or not. But they also, in fairness, offer an opposite argument in saying that if you have a COVID death, let's say that I get positive, my situation goes south, um, you know, I battle the infection for five or six weeks, go on a ventilator, and eventually I perish because I died outside the four-week period, then it might also not be a COVID death under the current definition. So uh, Danish health officials are literally now pouring over the death registry and the, uh, and the official reasons of death uh, for all the pandemic deaths, including the most recent ones, and, and putting out new death charts and trying to distinct, uh, kind of separate people who died specifically due to COVID uh, and people who died of some other reasons, but who had an infection when they perished. Yeah, and I mean, it's not obviously not a, a, a fun topic to to no. look into and to discuss, but I think it is an important one, and, and I'm at least <clears> see, <throat> seeing more questions about that as well. That that not to downplay anyone's death, but getting that information, no. it does seem that getting that information and getting the exact cause and what's happening, it is important if we're going to continue looking at numbers. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you're really into statistics, then I think it's pretty important to kind of figure that out. I think there's going to be some, I mean, I'm not a doctor or anything, but I assume there's going to be some maybe easier calls, but I think there may be a plethora of really tough calls. I mean, there's been, uh, through the entire pandemic, the most vulnerable populations have been um, the frailer people in our society, the very, very old people dealing with a number of health conditions that weren't COVID, but who exacerbate the situation should they get COVID. 
Uh, and I'm assuming that there may be cases in there that I don't know how you distinctualize between did the person die from COVID or did they die from this other ailment or range of ailments they were dealing with. And I think those will be interesting calls. But from a statistical point of view, I think it's really good to get clarity there. But I think it's been sort of a lightning rod here, uh, at least on the international level, for people who are looking at that as, again, a distinction without a difference and, and see it as Denmark trying to minimize its death count and as some kind of PR exercise to cover its its current strategic approach to the pandemic. All right. Well, Shane, thank you, as always, for joining us and talking about this and bringing us up to date on what's happening there and elsewhere in the world. Appreciate your time, and we will talk to you again soon. Sounds great. You guys stay safe. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Well, during the week of February 7th to the 11th, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, several fisheries officers from several detachments all took part in an enforcement operation in the waters of Boundary Bay near White Rock. And during that five-day joint venture, they seized more than 300 illegal commercial crab traps. And joining us to talk a little bit more about this is Art Demsky, Detachment Commander with Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jill. How significant is it that to more than 300, I think it was 312 illegal commercial crab traps were seized? It's a significant quantity. Um, we do this on, on a fairly regular basis, and we've seen that in a matter of a few days, always seem to come up with hundreds of traps. It kind of indicates the level uh, of activity there is, and and um, it, it has an impact on the resource, um, uh, undoubtedly, and not just in Boundary Bay, but this kind of activity occurs everywhere in BC. And when you talk about these illegal commercial crab traps, then do they have? Are they attached to any kind of flotation, or how did you find them? Okay, yeah. So this particular type of gear is crab fishing gear. It's uh, all crab fishing gear legit, uh, to be legitimate has to be marked with a boy that, uh, that's at the service that identifies who owns and operates it uh, and can identify how much gear that's out there. Uh, we need to know where that gear is so we can inspect it if need be. We need to know where it's at and how much there is so we can quantify, you know, how, uh, in terms of the, the, the number of, of uh, types of fishing gear out there what they might be catching and the totality of what they're getting. This gear has no floats attached. It's sunken. It sits on the seafloor. It's attached to what we call ground lines, which is a leaded line uh, that's, um, that's, that's obviously weighted because uh, the term leaded on the seafloor and, and a number of traps attached to the ground line. Now, the way uh, these uh, illegal fishermen find it is they mark the GPS coordinates on some type of navigational device. They can go out there any time, day or night, and find it uh, by throwing a hook attached to a line over the side and dragging for it, and in essence, hooking onto the gear, and then they pull it to the surface and take the catch out. Okay, uh, that answers my question. I was going to ask if it was kind of ghost gear or abandoned, or if not, how they're finding it, but that that makes sense. When your crews then discovered these illegal uh, crab pots, crab traps, I would assume that there were crabs in a lot of them. What did what happened to the crabs that were in these traps? Um, anything that's in the traps we release. a significant amount of crab, but also other uh, invertebrates and fish species like sole and flounder. Whatever goes into the trap. The unfortunate part is the majority of these traps have their um, escape 
gate mechanisms wired shut or, or uh, set in such a way that if those traps do become lost or abandoned, they can never open, so they continually fish and continually kill whatever goes inside, and whatever goes inside becomes bait and to attract other fish. And that's when it becomes ghost gear, when that illegal gear becomes lost or abandoned, and that happens a lot. And is there any way then for the uh, illegal traps that were seized, is there any way, I would imagine there's not, if they didn't have a boy attached to them, uh, is there any way to link who belong, who these belong to? Well, again, since there's no markings, um, no float to identify who they are, again, in the various fisheries, commercial, First Nations, uh, even sport fisheries, there's got to be some kind of identification. The commercial fisheries and First Nations, they also have to have a tag attached to the, to the trap itself so that we can identify the owner, uh, either by a number, or a color, and year, and number, something like that. So these would have nothing. Very difficult unless we actually see the people putting them there or catch them, hauling them in to determine who they are. And what is the market then for the crab that's caught illegally? Where does it go? Well, generally, all, all crab in BC, or most of it, is, is uh, the majority is Dungeness crab, a particular species. It's quite valuable. Um, the, the major market is China. China kind of drives the prices. Certain times of the year, the value is way up there. Um, just prior to um, um, Christmas and Chinese New Year, the price of crab shot up to uh, as much as uh, twenty-eight dollars a pound. Now, normally, most times of the year, it's around six, eight dollars a pound. So it can go up substantially, and that makes it extremely lucrative for those who would seek to. Uh, Harvest illegally, uh, um, something like crab. I mean, we call that illegal, unreported, and unregulated type of fishing. It's very, very um, detrimental, not only to uh, the resource, but to various industries and the livelihoods of people, to First Nations who depend on it for food, and even to sport fishermen who like to go and catch the odd crab. And this was a specific operation that took place, uh, again, at Boundary Bay near White Rock. Is this something that you anticipate or that's happening all up and down the coast? Yeah, illegal activity, uh, uh, this illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing happens all over the BC coast. In fact, it's it's all over the world, um, and, and it's a major problem. Uh, we're trying to deal with what we can here uh, locally and within our own waters. And uh, again, yes, fishery officers go out there uh, whenever we can. We this isn't this is only one fishery of many that we we uh, are mandated to enforce and, and regulate. And in, in this instance, uh, we also had the assistance of the Coast Guard uh, and their hovercraft, and uh, we managed to get all this illegal gear. It's it's uh, it's not a permanent solution by no means. But at least this slows down the bad guys. You know, um, it hits them in their pocket book as well and we will investigate uh, we will continue to investigate these types of offenses uh, we have been getting large fines for uh illegal fishing especially illegal crab fishing the maximum fine five hundred thousand dollars for a repeat offender up to a hundred thousand for first time and jail by the way uh, you can get up to two years in jail we've been seeing fines up to two hundred thousand dollars lately 
How do you continue investigating, though, if you, there's no markings, there's no identification? Uh, I mean, even if you went out there, I would imagine, and saw somebody uh, uh, putting the hook down and it was pretty clear that they were looking for these things, I would imagine that's not enough to go on. So how do you actually investigate and try and catch whoever it is behind this? Yeah, it's not easy. Um, it takes time, obviously, like uh, any type of investigation. And we start with little bits and pieces and we go from there. Um, build, build our cases, uh, build our investigations to the point where we, where we have to have um, enough evidence to take it to court. And like it, it, like I said, it takes time, but we rely on the public uh, in a big way. We don't have a lot of fishery officers, so any information we can get, you know, there's uh, disgruntled employees out there. There's people that might see or hear something in the middle of the night in uh, an unusual location, like along the border uh, down in Boundary Bay. We rely on people to, you know, call in, uh, give us those tips, call into our observe, record, and report line, and report any suspected vi- violations. That's a huge benefit to us, and it's not only a benefit to us, it's a benefit to uh, the resource in the long run. All right. So, sorry, where do people contact DFO then, or if somebody does want to report what is, what is uh, suspicious activity, where should they contact the, the DFO? Okay, there's a toll-free line, 24-7, um, 1-800-465-4336. Now, that's, they can phone in. They can they entirely re- remain anonymous, uh, anonymous if that's what they choose. They can also go onto our um, Fisheries Notions Canada webpage, um, www.dfo-mpo.gc.ca and, and look for the links uh, to our observe, re- record and report uh, violations uh, section. All right. Well, thanks so much, Art, for coming on the program and for talking about this. Uh, we, we don't talk about it a lot, but it is definitely something that's important. So uh, thank you so much for the update. You're very welcome, Jill. It's 2.30 on a Thursday, the regulars are calling in. There's a weirdo and he's on the radio, he is playing the accordion. He said, hey, check out this brand new melody, I'm not really sure how it goes. But I think it's funny, it's about Port Moody And I'll play it on Jill Bennett's show Oompa-pa All right, that is the music and lyrics of Adam Faber and the accordion as well. And Adam is on the line with us to talk a bit more about how that all came about. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Well, I, I will say history was made there, Adam, because that is the first time we have invited somebody to come on the show to talk about, well, just to talk about what they're doing. And in such a short, well, any amount of time, wrote and sent and uh, posted a song about the show and about coming on the show. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about uh, your love of the accordion, your playing of the accordion. When did you start? Okay, so the accordion was left to me by my grandparents ages ago. It wasn't left to me specifically. It was just left in an attic. Uh, and and, and, and one, at one point, I thought, this thing is gathering dust. I have piano lessons. Why don't I pick this thing up and give it a try? It's 
it, it, it's just a sideways piano, right? How <laughs> sure. different can it be? Um, turns out it was very different. Um, and as I was kind of struggling to learn it, my friends were making very helpful suggestions. Like, you should play Metallica on that, or you should play Guns N' Roses on that. Um, so I took them up on it, and I, and I did. But uh, I'm not really good at remembering words, so I just started making up my own about things around me. And that might be strange news stories or, you know, people um, or just uh, things I, I care about. And, and that's that's been the kind of arc of how this has all happened. Well, it's uh, amazing how you've picked it up and uh, been able to find those things to write about and sing about. I understand, though, as well, you've been playing the accordion for a few years, but you've just recently moved to B.C. Mm-hmm. I moved from Halifax about three weeks ago, uh, and I needed to get stuck in and learn, you know, what community am I in, what's going on. So, you know, that's that's local news. So I kind of just started reading up on what people care about and what they're talking about. Um I stumbled across this pickleball uh, story where these uh, people living near parks are really grumpy about pickleball because it's louder than tennis. Um, and, and yeah, so I had to write a song about that. Um, and that was kind of my, and, and, and then it all took off. And, and, and then my phone started ringing. So uh, yeah, I, I guess I went viral in, in Port Moody. <laughs> Well, I mean, what strikes me there, too, is that you just said Port Moody, but I I was going to say pickleball for whatever reason, maybe it is the noise. uh, It's become contentious in a lot of different communities. But I think you're right. Uh, Port Moody was the first where we first started seeing it happening. And I'm assuming you saw it in the local news. How long did it Mm -hmm. take you uh, to write the song about pickleball? takes me about a half a day to kind of get through the whole thing. My wife and I kind of just, uh, if we're on a long drive or we're just hanging around, uh, we start just rattling lyrics back and forth at each other. <laughs> we try and say like, okay, what's a phrase about the news story? And, 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 and what song is already close to that phrase? So you, know, you had Pickleball, so that's very close to Wonderwall. So I had to sing the song Wonderwall because it sort of rhymes with pickleball. Um, and, and that's how it happens. And then, and then I get locked in a closet where the sound is nice and deadened by all the clothes around me, and I, and I rattle it out into my phone and, and, and post it online. That, that's the whole creative process. I've, I've let you in. <laughs> <laughs> now we know. Uh, so your now, home now, you, your home base is in Port Moody. Yes, that's right. But- um, I work remotely for a tech startup in Toronto, and uh, so that gives me a little bit of leeway to, 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 to do this stuff. I, I'm sure I saw, though, one of your posts. So it's not only Port Moody that you sing about, because I, did I not see uh, you were in front of the infamous barge in Vancouver? That's right. I hopped in the car and I drove down to the barge. So I had it over my shoulder and, and basically just sold, sang total removal of barge <laughs> to the tune of total eclipse of the heart. Because they're cutting it up, and 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 that, and and from what I can tell, they're cutting up a piece of the community's heart right now. A lot of people are very attached to that barge, despite the fact it's empty and washed up on a beach. <laughs> Although I think there are some people uh, that might be happy to see it go, but maybe they aren't being quite as vocal as uh, as the others, those who have grown attached to, to it. Right. Uh, what other things have you written songs about? Okay, so when I was in Halifax, I there was. There was other things that kind of that caught my eye. We had some goose attacks, geese attacks, um, at like a local park. So I had to war- I had to warn people about these geese uh, because they had flown back up north. And so I wrote 
these geese want to fight. The Dartmouth geese aren't nice. The Backstreet's back all right. Um, there were some other ones I did. I was crabby about having to pack my own groceries. So I did uh, show you what it's all about, but to it, to Sobeys, I hate self-checkout. Um, you know, just whatever, whatever is either bothering me or someone else. Um, what, what I can do to any conversation is add volume because the accordion is loud. So if there's, if there's any causes out there or people who need a little bit more volume to their message, uh, there's a local troubadour in town, and he'd be happy to lend you a little bit of uh, racket. <laughs> well, your, your timing-wise, uh, coming here about three weeks ago, you were a bit t- too late to, to uh, take on the Stanley Park Coyotes, although I'm not sure if you've heard about them. But I don't know which side. I could see you going to either side of that and writing a song either from the point of view of the Coyotes, wanting people to leave them alone, or, or the people who perhaps have been bitten by them. And, and this is the, the journey I'm on. I'm, I'm brand new. I'm just getting stuck in. This is, this is the first I've heard about this. Uh, so so um, it's kind of a quid pro quo. You let me know about these things and I'll, and I'll lend some voice. And that's just going to help me get uh, more established here in the area and, 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 uh, and, and, and learn what's going on. Have you had people giving you suggestions? I'm guessing as people hear more of your music and learn more about you and see your Twitter feed and your social media, you might get flooded with suggestions. I would welcome that. Uh, it's been I've had I've had a journalist or two kind of sidle up to me saying like I'm not allowed to say this, but I bet you are. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so I could be a little pressure valve. That's fine. You know, feed me feed me ideas. I'm uh, I'm I'm a monster waiting to be unleashed. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that, that you work from home as well. Uh, it sounds like this could be a full-time job, though. Maybe not an overly lucrative one at this point, but it sounds like you could put in a lot of time. Um, yeah, I mean, that's true. It could absolutely be a time sink. I don't know how much money there is in accordion spoofing. There's one guy, I believe, who's cornered that market. <laughs> uh, are you working on anything specific right now? Uh, I kind of lie in wait until the mood strikes. If I force it, then it's not quite as good. Um, So all I do is kind of keep an eye out on what's going around. And then when the right story has that right kind of sparkle, the the right combination of it matters to people and it's a little stupid, uh, that's when I attack. So, you know, local politics is great for that. Uh, City council, look out. I am watching you. Um, And then, you know, certain other things are just... uh, just come into my life like that, like that barge that barged into my life. That was perfect. <laughs> well, with it being a civic election year, my thoughts are you may have a whole lot of material coming your way in the next few months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so just in time for an election, there's a new court jester. Amazing. <laughs> uh, I will accept this position uh, graciously and uh, with a lot of racket. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing more of your music and your songs. And again, Adam, thank you so much for writing that song for the show and for your appearance on the show today. I loved it. 
Thanks for my radio debut. (laughs) All right. That is Adam Faber. He is a Port Moody resident. He's an accordion jester. You heard the song that he wrote when we invited him on the show, and he uh, so graciously accepted our request to come and chat with us. As we go to break, we're going to play part of another one of Adam's songs, one of many. You can check them out on Twitter, on his social media feed. Here is more of Adam Faber, Faber as we go to break. Today was going to be the day I'd lie down for an hour or two. How? But now with the rackets coming out, it's not something I can do. Wow. I can't believe that anybody playing two-on-two could be so loud. I know they're having fun. I'm really trying. 